Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the brothers of Cohen, <laughs> who are brothers. Uh, that The mook chuckling over there in the corner is my trusty co-host, Mr. Abraham Epperson. Hi, hi. We are the I'm brothers. Michael Swain. Yeah. Let's do it. Let's do let's, it. 2009. <laughs> Fucking. What? What about? Oh, you're, you're taking me back. <laughs> a serious man. Let's do yes. this. Yes. In our uh, chronological catalog, with the lone exception of Buster Scruggs, which we covered immediately, because it felt pressing. Mm. Tom Waits was in it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have finally reached. I I feel like I may have said this before, but I am rendering all those null and void. I say it now, and it will stand till the end of this series. This is my favorite Coen Brothers movie. It's a bold statement from a bold man. It's bold. It's bold. And uh, just quick lightning round. Do you agree or disagree? Just Uh, yes or no? I can't give that answer. All right. So on Coen Brothers Brothers, we analyzed the films of (laughs) Joel and Ethan Coen. A very bold man and a very meek man. I say Cone Brothers Brothers through three <laughs> strata. <laughs> like, I'm ambivalent about all of these movies, oh, sure. really. Yeah, that's, that's the takeaway. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. why we did the show. Is so we're how not do we sure. do the show again? What are, what are the, we, what's our format? We, we analyze it through three spectra. Thanks for asking, Abe. Mm-hmm. The first being diegesis. The second, pedagogy or pedagogy which I don't even want to know the proper, the real answer. And, uh, of course, how do you do that? The most mm-hmm. solemn and serious of the segments at the end. So uh, let's dive in right into diegesis, which is basically what's this movie about? But, like, only a little taste of, yeah, but what is it about? Because that's pedagogy. So yeah. this is, like, textually, concretely, what's the movie about? And uh, as Abe said, it's 2009. Stars Michael Stuhlbarg, Fred Malamed, Sari Linick, and Richard Kind, and other folks as well. Mm-hmm. And it has the holy quatrology of the Cohen universe all on deck, which is Deacons, Burwell, Zofries, and Chenoweth. You got you got the whole team. Uh, Deacons is back, baby. He took a little <laughs> yeah. he took a little break for uh, burn after reading. Uh, to sh- shoot some shit. I don't remember what I said on the last podcast, yeah. but uh, that's true. And now he's back. And man, is this film beautiful, right? Yeah. I, is it? Could it possibly have been assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford? Is the timing right for that? Perhaps I cannot recall. I, and I bring that up because there is a, a let's all get high scene, and oh, I guess you're there's right. Two. Yeah. And I've realized this time it's very it's the deaconizer baby the deaconizer the piece of equipment yeah now we're sliding into how to do that for a first time ever that's true we're we're, instead of going into the symbolism early we're jumping right into the technical details but yeah yeah you're actually you you might be right about that you might be right Uh, yeah i'm not positive it's a deaconizer but uh for the uninitiated roger deacons the coen brothers longtime cinematographer dp director of photography Uh, invented a device called the Deaconizer, which he heavily used in Assassination of Jesse James. And I feel like the high sequences in this are also using it. But I could be wrong. It could just be a light, uh, you know, uh, premiere filter. What it is is it's essentially a customizable uh, focal plane vignette. So if you imagine a vignette, which usually deals with darker, like the edges are darker, Mm -hmm. uh, imagine not that, but instead that coverage 
uh, is out of focus and in focus in strange ways that are kind of off-putting. Usually a lens is like there's one focal plane. And a deaconizer is a thing where you have a a bunch of lenses in front of each other so that you can kind of customize what you see and you don't see. Uh, Very akin to something also known in the industry called a lens baby. Uh, That's just (laughs) the inside of Hollywood. Lens baby. All right. Lens baby. So the movie starts with an opening epigram, receive with simplicity everything that happens to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's attributed to Rashi. I looked that up. He is a famous Jewish scholar and thinker and historian. Uh, I kind of like, it's like a super rush portmanteau. So Rashi is Rabbi Shlomo Itzaki. So they just like ran his name together and he's Rashi. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So he's a famed Talmudic scholar. The Coens are Jewish and were raised in the faith. And uh, that's a lot of where this movie comes from. So and in Minnesota, there you know, yeah. in particular, where this takes place, which I believe is 1967. So it's kind of reminiscent of like their when they were growing up. There, I don't think that they're necessarily Danny, who's Larry's son's analog, but right. they, they witness this time through the lens of as children. Definitely. I would argue that it seems so well composed towards a particular end that I doubt that it's just a raw autobiography like people do where you're like, let's have a quirky take on what our childhood was like. But it is very much steeped in the reality of what their childhood was like. Yeah, bar mitzvahs, the faith, a lot of that kind of stuff. Suburbs. But uh, tract housing with mezuzahs Mm -hmm. everywhere, angry neighbors, angry white neighbors. Um, But yeah, there's... uh, also, I think, uh, interestingly, all of Danny's friends on the bus are named after kids the Coens knew growing up. So yeah. they're not shying away from that aspect. Right. So this is about a family uh, living in tract housing in the 60s and just sort of some stuff that happens. But it's loosely an adaptation of the Book of Job. So the story is centered around the dad of the family, Larry Gobnick, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, in what I would call a revelatory turn. Yeah. Um, before that, he was primarily known as a stage actor. He originated one of the roles in Pillow Man, a great Martin McDonough play. Martin McDonough went on to write in Bruges and other films, uh, Seven Psychopaths. So it all comes full circle. But basically, um, it's the story of this guy having his life fall apart And as he repeatedly says throughout the film, and it seems pretty true, I didn't do anything. It's unclear why he's being punished if you believe in karmic justice, which Jews are like sort of beholden to do if they're in the faith. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's the classic Job Riddle. What what did I do? You ask God. Like, why is this happening to me? Yeah, I is think it a, a test? More, What's going on? A yeah. more specific uh, resonant line at one point, he says to the second rabbi, "Why does he speaking to God? Why not to God, but about God? Why does he make us feel the questions if he's not going to give us any answers?" That's kind yeah. of the um, existential uh, ana- like aim of this movie. Um, right. Yeah. So. But basically, in concrete terms, he is a professor, and he is... Several things are in play, but I'm going to try and tackle them all at once, and Abe, jump in whenever, uh, just to pass the baton. But we agreed to blow through diegesis, because this movie is all about pedagogy. But on the surface level, he's a professor. The three things going on in his life are, he's up for tenure, which he may or may not get, and it has to be decided. He 
His wife is leaving him for another man and wants a get, which is a ritualistic Jewish divorce, which would allow her to remarry him and stay in the faith. Um, so, yeah, an important aspect of the film is everyone assigning different, like, we think this is right because mm. we ascribe to this set of values. And an important um, note, uh, yeah. she is already engaged, uh, not engaged, but basically if they're saying they're going to get a get she's been dating on the side which is a break of you know uh, marriage you know uh, a breach of the marriage contract one could say uh Cy, this man who's Cy a very Abelman. a very odd man who um <laughs> who who is basically coming in and house wrecking um and yeah breaking up the family yeah um, and yeah she often says we've had problems and we've talked about this, but I think very intentionally, you never see the problems. Like you never fully understand why is the marriage falling apart? What mm -hmm. happened? Um, you do it nothing. just seems, yeah. it just seems to come out of nowhere. Uh, and the other thing that's happening at the same time is that a student in his class failed the class, which means they're going to lose their scholarship. Mm -hmm. And, they have given him a bribe in exchange, they hope, for him changing their grade. And he says, no, he's not going to do it, but he still holds on to the money in the envelope. And there's a question the whole movie of, is he ever going to cave and use that money, which would be, of course, taking the bribe. Yeah, and that, yeah. that is the character of Clive and Clive's father, a South Korean family. Love Clive. Clive's Love. amazing. Yeah, <laughs> and there's some father. good lines. Some of the best and his scenes. father has my favorite line in the whole thing, but we'll get to that. Sure, sure. Oh, I bet we wrote the same one that where I was like, this line is the whole movie, and it's only like four words long. Is that the it's one you're four words up? long? Yeah, but yeah, I was just baby. Say, yeah, baby. Come it's a lens, brothers. baby. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, I feel like it's one where I don't even need to go through sequence by sequence like we sometimes do, because no yeah. country, it's like a taut like then it's a game of chess. But this, generally, it's just the process of uh, his home life decaying. He lives with his brother, who seems to have some form of mental illness, and uh, also uses prostitutes and has gambling problems and is like generally, uh, in an uncharitable manner of speaking, a burden to him. Yeah. Um, and everything gets worse and worse, and Cy Abelman is taking his wife and taking his kids and taking his life over. And mm -hmm. then one day, Cy Abelman dies in a car accident. He goes over to the neighbor's house because he's thinks of himself as single now, gets high with the sexy freewheeling neighbor lady. Mm -hmm. His son uh, has his bar mitzvah and reads a, an excerpt from the Torah in front of everyone, also super high. Uh, he he and his wife have a moment of brief, like, quasi-reconciliation over the fact that, like, look, I still respect you. We'll get through this divorce thing, and it's nice that we we'll both enjoy our son. Like, we both still love our kids. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. So then he's feeling pretty good, but on the downside, because of his brother's prostitution, uh, getting arrested for soliciting prostitutes, he owes a criminal attorney a vast amount of money, so he caves and decides to take the bribe. He changes Clive's grade. At that very moment, he gets a phone call from his doctor implying that uh, he's dying of cancer. 
Oh, meanwhile, that's inferred, but yes, yeah, that, that's, that's heavily inferred. What it is. Yeah. I can't prove that. That is my interpretation. It's a, we need to talk about these X-rays. You should come in. It should be, but be- it would be better if you heard it in person. Can probably only mean one thing. Especially because he goes, well, let's make an appointment, and he goes, you should come now. We'll talk now. So you're like, well, that's very bad. Then, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And um, at the same time. His son's basic arc the whole time is just yeah. that he's trying to get 20 bucks back that got confiscated so that the bully he bought pot from won't kick his ass. And on the day of his bar mitzvah, he gets his tape deck returned to him, pays the bully 20 bucks, doesn't get his ass kicked, but also a tornado comes and it abruptly cuts off and you don't know what happens with all that. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the film. Another, another, uh, there's two other arcs that I would say are subplots that definitely mm-hmm. will have relevance. One of them is which he has a, uh, Pretty clearly racist neighbor uh, on the other side of the lot. So there's Vivian, uh, who's foxy the, neighbor lady. the foxy neighbor, naked neighbor. And then on the other side, um, you have Mr. Brandt, um, who essentially uh, he's trying to mark his territory as I'm going to make a boat shed. But Larry's like, well, I think that actually it's that's intruding in my land it goes over the property it goes over the property line so that's another thing that in the discussions with the attorneys uh which his divorce attorney is kind of like an like he's not a criminal lawyer or anything like that but he uh he gives him guidance on all the different legal issues and one of the other ones is that uh obviously uh played by Richard Kind, his brother Arthur, yeah. is very good at numbers. Um, and he uh, has like a gam- he had a gambling addiction that's kind of hinted at. But over yep. the scope of the film, there is an arc where he's found at the North Dakota, which you can kind of infer is a gay bar uh, because he's brought in by the police uh, for solicitation and sodomy, uh, which kind of, you know, really... Like that's something that's very surprising to Larry is that his brother's uh, gay, and right. then in addition to all of that, his brother who does have mental issues has created something called. Do you remember the name of it? The I Mentaculus. Believe, the Mentaculus, which is kind of described as a probability map of the universe, uh, which when we only get one shot of at one point, it's an insert of what it is, and it looks like scribblings more or less from. Like as if you were to take like, like a, a serial killer. Someone is probably yeah. schizophrenic. Yeah. It's 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 basically trying. It's it's pages full of math at, that looks like uh, like structures of math. Uh, yeah. So and looks, Hebraic characters, yeah. which like a uh, mix of which I'm going to come back to in pedagogy. Right. Yeah. Which is a, another interesting thing. Another ped, You know, another symbolism aspect that we're going to talk about is Larry is a physics teacher, and he always gives a basically the same lesson, which is a, a proof for the uncertainty principle, which we actually already saw the Conan brothers are definitely interested in that principle as we saw mm-hmm. in, uh, uh, you know, uh, the man who wasn't there. So it, it, it's something that is they're focused on. And I think it really propels the symbolism of the entire film because it has to do with what we don't know. And that's where it becomes really interesting because I don't think you'll like this movie if you're the type of person who needs the, uh, like, the scenes to coalesce in a way that, like, it is a lot of 
therefores and not a lot of ands, even though the way we're describing them is that, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens. There isn't that terribly strong narrative device that we get told in screenwriter class that it's like, because he wants this, he has to do that. That's still prevalent right. in the movie. Raising Arizona. Right. They are infertile, so they steal a baby, so they are wanted, mm -hmm. so they go on the run. Everything is linked in that way. Yeah, there's still linkage. I mean, they know what they're doing. The Coen brothers, you know, I, I have a crisis of faith. I'm going to see the rabbi, therefore. you know. Right, that's but, another thing we should uh, bring up, I think, in this spectrum is it also is very much about fables and traditional tales and i think that's obviously that's a reason that it's steeped in judaism but also mm -hmm. i think a i was surprised to find that a lot of people f consider this film dense and confusing or pair it with barton fink because mm -hmm. i do find barton fink dense and confusing i think this is very clear and it's just an essay on a topic most people don't like to think about so they're not really open to decoding it. Yep. But like this movie, and we'll get to it, has way more lines than the Coens usually have, where mm -hmm. someone like a moral in a fable says what the movie's about directly, like directly. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the cover image and the poster image is, I also think, just such a clear way to decode the film. But uh, all I wanted to get at for Diegesis is that he goes to... Over the course of the film, while he's having this family drama, he goes and sees a series of three rabbis, and it's treated like a fable. You know, like, what wisdom will the first rabbi impart? They actually put chapters. Title cards, yeah. Rabbi, the first rabbi, the second rabbi, and then Marshak. You know? The first rabbi is he young, second not the rabbi third. He is the wizard Marshak. of Oz. Yeah. yeah. Uh, first rabbi is young, second's middle-aged, last one's old. It's like a joke or a fable. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, we completely blew by there is a short at the beginning of the film that is a Jewish fable, like a folktale. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you want to, I guess I can encapsulate want, it real I can, quick. No, I can do it. I can do it. So right, in the, it's, the prologue is a Jewish man. It's in Eastern European, like seven, 19th century or something. Uh, he comes home and he tells his wife that on his way home, he helped this guy, Groshkover who uh, he invited over because he's like, oh, well, we know you, you know, and stuff like that. Like, you should come over. It's been so long. It's related to his wife. Yeah. It's related to his wife. And she says, nah, you couldn't have met him because he's dead. He died three years ago. That must mean that the man you invited must be a Dibbuk, which is uh, in the faith, I guess. It's like not equivalent to like a demon, but more like an ill omen spirit. Someone yes. who like you keep at your house who is actually like brings ill tidings. Uh, yeah, she said we're ruined. God has cursed us. So yeah, it's bad exactly. For sure. it's, yeah. So he arrives, which is a great payoff because it makes it kind of start off of like, am I watching a horror movie? You know, like, uh, yeah, and yeah, there's a knock on the door and, it opens arrives and it's a creepy old man. Yeah. Immediately, uh, the wife says that you must be that because I heard you died. I even, here's proof of it. I even like we sat Shiva and stuff like that. It wasn't like something that I heard from a person. You died. And, and he she's laughs like, it off. do you want soup? And he's like, it's a little too late to eat soup. And she's like, demons see Dibbics don't eat. Yeah. I'm convinced. <laughs> yeah. They don't eat. Uh, so, uh, she, 
he laughs off the accusation, but she stab she the whole time she's been uh, ice picking in a bucket to yeah, bucket you know to break up for water, and she plunges the ice pick into his chest, and at first you go oh. Uh, he, he might be a demon, you know, because he barely reacts. He, he, laughs. he reacts. He laughs. He doesn't react. But then John Luke Picard's it, dude. Yeah. He, he has the same origin story as John. It's right in the heart. <laughs> and uh, and he kind of uh, he just kind of sits there for the longest amount of time. And then you see the blood start to seep through. Yep. And then he get, he's like, you know what? I know when I'm not wanted and bleeding. He exits the home. And she's like, uh, see, you must be a demon. You're barely reacting. And he's yeah. like, on the contrary, I don't feel at all well. And he wanders out into the snow and the short ends. So, of course, the question is, it is a Schrodinger's cat or an uncertainty principle fable mm-hmm. in encapsulated in a microcosm because yeah. the husband assumes he's going to keel over and die in the snow. Yeah. And even, they'll be, and the town will shun them for murder. Right, right. The wife and assumes she just valiantly cast off a demon and God will be very pleased. Blessed we is the Lord. Yeah. We never find out the result. Uh, we don't know who's right. In fact, they go to the point, the Coen brothers go to the point of, in the credits, uh, next to the actor who played the role. Fibus uh, Finkel. It says, Dibbuk, question mark. So yeah. they, they're already nodding to that. Like, it doesn't have, we're not sure. We're, what are we saying? To, and that's further to the point in a very Coen Brothers, you know, snake-like fashion that they love to do. They have come down very hard in interviews and said, it's just a parable that sets the tone. It's just we wanted people to get into that, like, atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And they're, br- of course, as I've said many times on this, you know, podcast, they're full of shit. It has symbolic meaning, even if they don't cop to it. They know what they're doing. It may not be a perfect one-to-one, which is probably why they're Yeah, they literally hiding. said, it's nothing more than a little short we made to get the audience in the proper mood. There's no meaning behind it. Bullshit, yeah. dude. Bullshit. And I, I think it's, <laughs> it's part of it is that they want to hide from the fact that like it's not a perfect one-to-one like symbolism and they hate it when like film criticists come in and like are like oh that this means that this means this this means this and this person must be exactly the kind of shit that we do yeah and then that and then it's imperfect and they don't want to deal with things that aren't imperfect so they just say stuff randomly you know like in fargo where this is based on a true story they just say things uh that doesn't mean that there aren't parallels and there aren't symbolic visual and uh narratives uh parallels to the actual story itself so yes it does set us in a mood but also obviously the existential question of uh certainty the the lack of assurance of whether something is a bad omen uh the disagree a couple disagreeing over whether it's a good thing or a bad thing or what they should believe uh, the idea that people believe what they want, we're doomed versus blessed is the Lord is being the final like words and the whole thing. These are all themes that are unionized by the story of a serious man itself. Yeah, so, the fact that almost every fable, the format of a fable is to have a punchline at the end and the story ends before the punchline. Mm-hmm. That is appropriate to what we're talking about. So let's talk about it. You ready for pedagogy? Yeah. I think we did a good job. I think so. Uh, there's a lot. Star. There's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, it is. One of the first lot. things I want to just put in the ears of the audience 
which they have, the Coen brothers have said about many of their films is that they feel like they're constantly remaking uh, The Wizard of Oz. Now, I think that that's cool. I don't mm. think it's super important to this movie, only in that, yeah, there's tornadoes. Yeah, there's a Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's well, a journey. Well, the sequence of rabbis dreams. is like, there's yeah. also the idea of authority figures being flimsy in the end, yeah. like not having as much substance as you thought. Marshak, in the who plays you know the wise mage in this case, you know the 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 aged rabbi, the most venerable rabbi, right? In his office, he has pri- props on the tables and such, indicative of the stories uh, that have, we've been shown already in the movie. Much right, like, like the Dorothy teeth. waking up to see parts of her dream manifest in real life. There's little dashes of it, but it's. I think what they if I had to have a guess, my guess is when they say Wizard of Oz, the Coen brothers are actually probably arguing about how Wizard of Oz is like the ultimate like adventure story. It's like home going somewhere and home and back again. It's just but I a think very it's also, simple structure. I think they probably also have an affinity with the theme of Wizard of Oz being that mm. everything is illusory in the end. Yes. Like, the wizard is not really what you thought he was. You could have gone home anytime, and it was just a dream. And this was based on a book written to satirize the fact that we were going off the gold standard. So the moral is like, you fools, now our money is fake mm-hmm. because it mm-hmm. has no underlying substance. Um, I think a lot of their movies, especially in the latter half of their filmography, and this one, of course, which is why I bring it up, are at least in part about you fools, it's all an illusion. This is not real. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Look behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, go ahead. Did you? I, have, I, I know I, you had like a thought to preload into people. Yeah, I mean, I think there's brains. a lot of themes that we're going to go for. The one I mm-hmm. want to kind of start with because I feel like it infuses, like it feels like if I was writing a, a paper, this is my first, you know, paragraph, uh, is that what we're really dealing with is existentialism and the searching for meaning inside chaos and through the vise specifically of the uncertainty principle. Uh, Meaning is both there and not there in this movie for Larry. He's both married and not. The envelope of cash is both there and not because everyone's just kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I didn't give you an envelope because he's going to take a, like a bribe, you know, like it's um, only there if you observe. So like, if you know, I mean, a part of uncertainty principle is the dual wave, the wave particle duality, which is mm -hmm. that uh, quantum probability fields collapse once observed. So the idea is it's just money on an envelope right now. Yeah. If you do anything now, it's a bribe and it always has been retroactively, but right now it's no one can say what it is yet. Other (laughs) examples are anonymous comments have been made by people that Larry shouldn't get tenure, but they don't pay attention to them because they're anonymous, but they kind of do bring up questions. So they have importance and they don't. He lives at the Jolly Roger and at Fernhill road, which is his home. It's like all these different, it's this feeling of like, I got the feeling of when I watched, like, it's like watching the, watching this movie is like watching like that Abbott and Costello, uh, sketch who's on first and just being Mm. really frustrated by the fact that Abbott and Costello lack clarity. It's just like, no, you guys are, it's like someone who's not getting the joke and like the whimsy of it. That's our Larry looking at that kind of play happen and being 
immensely frustrated by the fact that the two characters just can't can't talk about the same thing and what is real and that is kind of opened up by the uncertainty principle in the first uh kind of suggestion or the first scene with clive where he's like i i, I got it and i'm sure you're going to have a lot of clo- quotes because clive is wonderful uh he ba- he basically comes out a uh hot a, out, of, out of the gates going like uh, I got an F. I don't think that that's fair. I understand the cat. He's like, it's not yeah, about so, understanding sorry, just, the cat. His, yeah, yeah, uh, the note that brings him into the office, I just noticed for the first time, says, uh, Clive would like to meet with you regarding unjust grades. I like unjust. <laughs> unjust, yeah. like, It is not just. I understand the dead cat. It is unjust. <laughs> Which Larry responds with, it's not about, that's the parable. That The parable is the cat. The cat is elucidates kind of like what we're talking about. But that's not the thing. The thing is the mathematics. And mathematics is the art of the possible, which is something that Sai says later, uh, which is kind of... Well, no, he doesn't... I don't think he says that because he corrects Sai because politics is actually the art of the possible. Politics, yeah, Otto von Bismarck or whatever. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. Larry says mathematics is the art of the possible. I like that. Uh, yeah, he goes, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sai does in his dream and he goes, no, it isn't. The art of the possible is something else, but I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. But I don't remember. And so, th- so the reason I did all that backing up is I think, mm. I think it's important to note that uh, in a, everything's in phase for Larry. Uh, and he's frustrated by it. Uh, and he do- people are taking advantage of him all the time because he wants to know the truth of the manner as opposed to having this confidence of things are a certain way. And that's kind of what, to me, this movie is about, is that like you can have an existential want and be really, really frustrated by like the uncertainty of the universe but ultimately you have to live your life and ultimately just like in the story of the goy's teeth uh you just kind of have like what's the purpose of that story well he went on to live his life what the fuck's your problem like that what's the that's not relevant it's not relevant what the answer to the the why question to the purpose questions it's just keep fucking living that's what everyone else says they keep telling him to be an adult and such like that so we're dealing with a man who's dealing with an existential crisis and at the same time is unable to uh like rectify all these different things that are intensely problematic to his worldview which is that I don't want to have to agree with the fact that I, I have to just pick away. Everything can be both in, everything can be like the cat. It can be dead and not dead. It's, it's, it's both, right? No, no, no. It's the well, cat. I don't think he wants it to be that. He wants certainty. Yeah. He like, certainty, uh, yeah. and on a craft level, what is so clever is every major arc involved, except for one. And I'll get to it later. Cause I don't want to abandon this point, but, um, Every major arc is his life becomes he's surrounded by Schrodinger's cats, which is the cat in the box that it's impossible to determine if it's alive or dead, which is such a perfect symbol in my mind because the true story is that Schrodinger created that experiment to prove that Einstein's an idiot. He's like, well, if that's true, then this could be true. Like, I could prove that there's a cat that's neither alive nor dead. Isn't that absurd? Mm -hmm. And now, 50 years later, quantum physicists are like, no, that's tr- that is true, and that's yeah. one of the foundational insights that led to quantum theory existing, um, is that that is possible. So, his life, like you said, everything in his life has become 
a Schrodinger's cat. His wife at various points acts like they are together. He's responsible to the family. The kids will be in your life. The kids won't be in your life. We're divorced. We might get back together. I don't know. Size dead now. Um, it's amazing how everything is always subverted to the central thesis. And if I may do my sort of essay paragraph as well, Go ahead. Um, it would be, so I did a little more research than usual. The term a serious man was coined by Simone de Beauvoir in her book, The Ethics of Ambiguity, which was basically a response to uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, the, considered the father of existentialism, although he hated being called existentialist because uh, he's emo. Um, basically, she wrote a book trying to uh, examine whether a system of moral ethics could come out of existentialism because if you decide that everything is illusory and the fact that things have meaning is just a game that the human mind plays you know we impart things with meaning and if we convince the people around us then the meaning seems even more firm like mm -hmm. oh this green piece of paper definitely means money because everyone agrees confirmation um, bias yeah exactly yeah she was saying but we're existentialists we see through that and see that it's all bullshit well if it's all bullshit can there be morality? How do you make moral decisions? Mm -hmm. And uh, her basic thesis that I think had to be the inspiration for what really hits home for me in this is she says every human is endowed with a terrifying freedom, which is that you know it's true. You have these moments like you could push someone in front of the subway. You could shit your pants right now. You know what I mean? Like right. you truly can do anything that your mind and body are capable of at any time. No one's stopping you. There will just be consequences. And um, she said like her, her basic thesis is that it's notable that the human organism is so is endowed with this freedom that may be the greatest power you know, sentience gives you a freedom that may be the greatest power any living creature has in the universe. And we spend like half our time trying to agree on a set of very simple rules, like the Ten Commandments or what have you, that we can, so we cannot have freedom because it's uncomfortable to have freedom because a big part of having freedom is coming to understand that just because you have freedom and make proactive choices, the reward you expect is not guaranteed. Cause and effect are muddy. And that is a bitter, frustrating experience, but there's no way around it. It's true. So like, like you said, grow up and get on with just appreciating life for what it is because it's all you're going to get. And I think the movie in large part is about, um, she said like, so people try to become a serious man, which she defines as someone who wholly accepts the moral strictures that they were taught and people usually think that's good, right? That means they're a pillar of the community. And she's just questioning, like, doesn't that really just mean you ascribe to a particular set of beliefs that are as illusory and cult-like as mm -hmm. any set of beliefs? And your life will be shaped by those set of beliefs. But you should be aware that at any time, you could sweep them away and make them meaningless and do something else. And whatever you set up as your system has no more or less meaning than anything because nothing actually has intrinsic meaning. And that's mm -hmm. what I love is with Clive, he says, uh, the, but the real thing is the math. Like, and, and he goes to the, he calls it out specifically with the second uh, rabbi when he says, everything's like a dual particle wave thing. I had a car accident the exact moment Cy Abelman had a car accident and died. 
that has to mean something, right? And all I can do with my logic brain is assume it, it either means God has a message for me, I am Cy Abelman, I am not Cy Abelman, I'm linked to Cy Abelman, or it's a shocking example of nothing means anything and I need to learn to accept that it's nothing. Which is it? And he goes like, yeah, yeah, no, God hasn't told me the answer to that one. And I love that in that scene, the rabbi, who does seem very dismissive, yet he gives a lesson that could save Larry if he accepted it. It's just not satisfactory to Larry, which is that he says, Hashem, which is the manifestation of the Abrahamic God, like in your life, in the world. Um, unfortunately, or like, I know it's frustrating, but it's literally just the way it is, like laws of physics. Mm-hmm. Hashem doesn't owe us answers to why things happen. The obligation works the other way around. Like, yeah. you owe the universe or your higher power, you owe them everything because you exist as, your whole existence is dependent upon the fabric of reality. Reality doesn't owe you shit. And mm-hmm. yes, we have the innate ability to desire clarity and answers. Tough shit. Like, that doesn't mean it will be satisfied. It becomes clear to me that they're, just like, uh, just like, uh, the existentialists and this movie, there, there's a very clear dichotomy, which is that the, there's the expression of the world or nature, and there's also the perception or the reception of that nature by the person. That dichotomy accounts for everything. You brought, you brought up Clive. I think of Mr. Brandt. He, uh, he, after Mr. Brandt's mowed his lawn, his lawn a little bit, like he... In, Cause he thinks and I love it because he's he, imparting meeting. He's like, yeah. no, l- mowed grass is the property line. Yeah. I'm choosing to mow my lawn and think it means that the property line is this where is, the lawn ends. Right. We interpret reality differently. So when he talks to Judith immediately after, uh, he says, Mr. Brandt keeps mowing a part of our lawn. She goes, does that matter? He goes, what? <laughs> I love that. And she goes, is it important? He goes, it's just odd. Uh, and that's kind of ca- encapsulates the two kind of things we're talking about. One and I is love the cyclone great of chaos, ahead, cyclone yeah. of chaos, which is, you know, like a literal tornado in some cases, getting cancer in another ca- case or a car crash in another case. And then you have on the other standpoint, all of the meetings with the rabbis and all of the discussions that we have with our wives, our friends, our attorneys that are basically like, what does it mean, though? And uh, it's just the fact that those are not ever to be reconciled is kind of the madness of like life. That's just right. You makes you mad if you. And we know things that like meditation is healthy and being present does cause the universe to like open itself up to you. And it's like the opening epigram says. we would all be better off if we could receive with simplicity everything that happens to us, no matter what, good or bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but good fucking luck. It's very, very hard to do. It's one of the hardest things in life and one of the most fundamental things. Like journeys we go on. To me, it's like a second growing up, um, especially in a, especially coming from a privileged life where I've had a lot of opportunities. Like There's a second growing up in adulthood, which is the growing up of realizing that the world is not a slot machine mm-hmm. or the world is not a school. And if there is a God, I don't even have to adjudicate that because I'm comfortable just saying, well, whatever there is, it clearly doesn't just reward me if I do good things and punish me if I do bad things. It's fuzzier than that. Mm-hmm. 
which is very frustrating. Uh, and I do want to mention another uh, book because actually our, our old pal Cesare Struzowicz, I think Struzowicz is right, but I could be wrong. But you know Cesare from Cracked, mm -hmm. tweeted in reference to something else, but I realized it totally vibes with this movie, a page of Terry Pratchett dialogue, the guy who writes the Discworld fantasy novels. And I was like, this is a great synergy with um, Serious Man because... I think Simone de Beauvoir would be the first to point out that existentialism can seem bleak because it talks of illusion and emptiness and the inherent lack of meaning in things. Um, but like, for example, they differentiate themselves from nihilists because they think of a nihilist as someone who takes that as a reason to give up. And it's an important tenet of existentialism that they're saying, no, 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 everything has no inherent meaning. That doesn't mean don't live your life. And it doesn't mean that your love for your child doesn't create mm -hmm. vibrations that fill you with like a feeling of meaning that mm -hmm. feeling's illusory but everything is you know fuck it like don't give up yeah um, go smoke some weed yeah so in uh one of the Discworld novels um this is a conversation with death who's a frequent character in those all right said susan i'm not stupid you're saying humans need fantasies to make life bearable death says Really, as if it was some kind of pill? No, humans need fantasies to be human, to be the place where the fallen angel meets the rising ape. Tooth fairies, hog fathers, little... Yes, that's practice. You have to start out learning to believe little lies. Why, so we can believe big lies? Yes, lies like justice, mercy, duty, goodness, that sort of thing. Those aren't the same at all. Oh, you think so? Take the natural universe and grind it down to the finest powder and sieve it through the finest sieve and show me one atom of justice or mercy. And yet, you act as if there's some ideal order in the universe. There is some rightness in the universe by which it can be measured and judged. And she says, yes, but we've got to believe that or what's the point? And he says, my point exactly. Um, which is just another way of getting at the same thesis. So I was like, that was a cool... Yeah. Coming together, yeah. <laughs> that, that reminds me of the uh, Columbia Records phone call. I don't want Santana Abraxas. Uh, just because it's kind of funny that Abraxas also is a Gnostic term for God. So he's literally saying, I don't want God or magic, this mysticism. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I've discovered that in research this time, which I did not know. But yeah, Abraxas is like... A word that means the entire pantheon of like religious thought and all deities, like the the aspect of religiosity. And he's going, I didn't ask for a praxis. Yeah. I didn't listen to a praxis. I don't want a praxis. Which is funny because then in the rest of the movie, all he's telling people is, I want God to please tell me what to do. Right, right. <laughs> and I love how he because his whole on the phone call, he's like, something is very wrong here. I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And, and his has, other catchphrase is. Yeah. What is what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Uh something as obvious and backward as a subscription service being explained mm -hmm. to someone who's just like, I was just in an auto accident and he's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, like all these things that are like uh it reminds me of that um Magnolia, the Phil uh Seymour Hoffman. You know that this is the scene in the movie where, you know, like uh, uh Where you help a stranger you, even yeah, though there's exactly. no logical reason to. Yeah. It reminds me of that just because it's <laughs> It's it's just like one of those moments where he's just like he is really breaking down barriers in a way that no one is comfortable with. Uh, he's not comfortable. The other side of the phone call is not uncomfortable comfortable with it. But he's just a Columbia House record employee, and he's just trying to 
get him to pay him money because right. he said he would. And he's and just like, a- I don't want to deal with this tiny little bullshit right now. I am having a crisis of faith, of existence. Yeah. And it's just like, this is just not the time for me to talk about whether or not I bought Santana Braxis. <laughs> right. And it's like, this is why it's my favorite movie and these are my favorite guys is the story could simply be he goes through a bunch of horrible shit and they could just Rolodex horrible shit. But no, they go a step further. Everything is the perfect flavor of bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like in this case, what better curse for this guy to get than he doesn't understand that by not unsubscribing he keeps getting charged so literally his stance and his catchphrase is like but i didn't do anything and the guy's like i know that's why this is happening because you didn't do anything and he's like right that's what i did in my marriage and it fell apart i don't understand why i'm getting punished for not doing anything and everything in the film screams to him yeah well open your eyes and figure that out because the answers are there to find, you know, like you don't have to, the world doesn't work in the way where just like, but I didn't do anything bad. What, like, what have I done to deserve this is basically his whole outlook. And he thinks that he's being humble in the face of God by saying, look, if it turns out I'm a piece of shit, I'll admit it. I blah, blah, blah. You know, I just want God to tell me why. And there, and I think the message he has to come to or not come to, the lesson is, you don't even get that, though. It doesn't, there isn't a why, and if there is a why, it's not within the bounds of human comprehension in this life. So, just, like, the second rabbi, uh, Nachner, says, um, Maybe these feelings that you're unfulfilled, that you're cursed because of some failing or evil you've done, maybe they're just like a toothache. They'll bug you for a while, and then you'll get wrapped up in your life again, and they'll go away. Mm -hmm. And he goes, and I, I sympathize so hard. I get it. He goes, that is, I would rather die than that be the end of this investigation. Like, that is an unsatisfactory, it feels like you're, you know, a fraud, a charlatan, a Wizard of Oz type mm-hmm. character who's just jerking me off. But then in retrospect, seeing the movie again, I'm like, actually, that is the only truthful advice the rabbi could really give. We don't know. Helping others couldn't hurt. <laughs> oh, yeah. He goes, he goes, yeah. Uh, oh, so you get in an accident at the same time. Punishment for your behavior? Don't know. A message from God about Psy? We can't be sure. Helping others? Couldn't hurt. Couldn't and hurt. And you're like... That's the worst advice ever. And then what I love about it is that duality where later you think about it and you're like, no, that's really yeah, solid that's, advice. That's all you can really do. It's all you can do because <laughs> we're staring into the infinite together and helping others couldn't hurt. It's the same thing with that when we actually have the Marshak, which I love. I absolutely love that. Uh, the It's like wisdom into the ears of babes. Uh, it's the guy, the kid who has no existential problems whatsoever because he's too young, his son, uh, Danny is allowed to see Marshawk even though like Larry wants to see him the entire film and he keeps trying, knocking. It's like waiting for Godot. And he never does get yeah. to see him. And, uh, and all Marshawk does is he quote, he's like, basically he's just a long line of, Oh yeah, I, I listened to your tape, and he quotes back to him, uh, you know, uh, Jefferson Airplane, and then lists the members of Jeff- Jefferson Airplane, just kind of like 
two fans of Jefferson Airplane would do. Just be like, right. what's the wisdom of it? It's Jefferson Airplane. It's good. It's good. When and all, it's very basic, but it's yeah. true. When, when all the truth hope is dies. found. Yeah. When all hope dies and the truth is lies. Yeah. Again, they picked the perfect thing. Because, mm-hmm. of course, they picked a song where the lyrics are existentialist, if you parse them in that way. Yeah, and then he When gives the truth the radio. is found to be lies, nothing has inherent meaning. Yeah. When all the hope within you dies, like when that disturbs you, when, what do you want? Yeah. Just somebody to love. Just a positive just manifestation a, of your love. existence. Yeah. Yeah. So he gives the radio back to Danny. He says, be a good boy. <laughs> Which is the and same of, the thing. you know, it's just like helping others. Couldn't hurt. <laughs> wisdom can, true wisdom can come from a 5,000-year tradition of specially crafted parables that were carefully passed down. Or a rock song can also be deeply meaningful and lead you to true wisdom. It's what you're open to and what hits you at the right time and how you interpret it. That's that's, that's going back to, like, my first point. That's what makes this film, like, it's flippable in a way. And by that I mean it's like... The thing that you're very frustrated with throughout the film, the idea that Larry in his search, when he's looking at all these different things and he's just like, I want a fucking answer and I don't want the soundbite wisdom or I don't want like, you know, when Cy comes I want to see the mathematics do this, do that. And he's like this pushover and he's just like, you, all you have to do is just do the simple thing and it'll be fine. And he's just like, no, I don't, I don't buy that. He's constantly arguing against it. And then by the end of it, he's just so beaten down and battered that it actually kind of goes through that going through that tribulation makes him kind of go, all right, maybe that's, maybe that's the, uh, that's the thing. Maybe the thing is that you just kind of choose a, uh, a life and that's and and that's all we can do and that begs the question like is this movie more heartbreaking than any of their coen brothers films like in fargo or no country See, there's that's deaths, me. Be- yeah i think they're the all frust- overreachers larry just wants to understand and when life refuses yeah. to help him with answers he just buys into the game he just takes the money he changes the grade he still gets cancer like it's like he he abandons his principles right. and but he's just, still getting mm-hmm. fucked over by tornadoes. But just like the car accident that hits Anton Chigurh in No Country, but he survives, I think the ending is necessary for the exact same reasons. Because if Larry decided to accept the wisdom that God's will is ineffable, he, there's still a very strong chance that he would be accepting it with the tacit understanding that, okay, now I've accepted that nugget of wisdom, what do I get now? Mm-hmm. Like, because the whole thing is wanting to understand, and he could still treat it as, okay, I'm doing what you told me to do. So I think it's important to the film to say, you could day after day after day after day could convince you that God doesn't take a hand in your life and this is all just chaos. And then the day that you finally decide you're okay with that, something could happen that clearly seems like the will of God. Cause he, he basically breaks his own moral code and immediately finds out he's dying. Right. And if you that read that as a, if you read, if you're, if you're a person of faith, you probably would read that as a thing of like, that is my comeuppance. But you even know, if you're a person like of There's... faith, I don't think you necessarily have to accept. I mean, you, some people do, and I'm not knocking that acceptance, but I do, I kind of side with Simone de Beauvoir that I think 
you're kind of it's built on a fear of making your own decisions or accepting the frivolity like how short and like chaotic our lives are to to ascribe cause and effect to it in that way and i think they put it in to make the point that look now it reversed again now it looks like god is watching larry Mm -hmm. well does that mean god does exist you still don't get to find out larry the universe doesn't owe you that. Like he had to be shown that one more time, even in giving in to the wisdom. Right. And I think that's also that's one of the ways I interpret the tornado coming at his son is there's something special about childhood, which is that he really can and I felt this way as a kid, and I do feel the change. His son is still young enough that he can see a lot of the wisdom and beauty encoded in every atom of the universe just by listening to music and getting high. Mm -hmm. But the tornado is coming. And whether he literally dies in the tornado or or not, what I mean is he will become an adult. And one day the thought will occur to him, how come, how can God be good when life seems so wonky and unfair? Mm -hmm. And it will bug him too. Like no one escapes battling these issues. And... Uh, as far as we can tell, according to the Cohen brothers and the line that we both wrote down from Clive's father, please accept the mystery. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I want to read, that is the quote. And I think that's one of the four or five lines that just really lays it out. Yes. That's the other thing is I don't see it as tragic only because I, f- I guess I'm viewing it as like what work the film is doing in the world versus I care about Larry. Mm. I think like Job, it is a parable. The whole thing's a parable. So I feel like it sucks if people are frustrated by this movie because this movie is powerfully trying to set you free and like really change your perspective in a way that could shift your entire life in a better direction. But you have to be open and ready for it. Mm. Um, Okay, so the line is, yeah, so after Clive basically says, which, oh, this is great too. He goes, in this office, the math holds. Actions have consequences in this office, and we both know what action you took. And Clive correctly says, no, only I know what action I took. And he goes, right, but I can infer. Which is like, Larry, you just broke your own rule. Like, obviously, you are willing to jump the math when it's not. So later, Clive's dad comes to try and push him to take the bribe, and the line is, and it's a perfect encapsulation of uncertainty. He uh, goes, we'll sue you for defamation. You can't sue me for defamation because I haven't told anyone. There has to be damage to... I can just pretend that the money never came. Yes, and give a passing grade. Passing grade or you'll sue me for defamation? Yes, for taking the money. So you admit he did give me money. That's defamation. That doesn't make sense. It can't be defamation if, look, either he left the money or he didn't. Please accept the mystery. (laughs) So it's the catch 22 uh, that all of the characters are kind of constantly gifting Larry. uh, And it's the perfect elucidation of it. You know, it's like like things can both be true and things can both be false. And sussing it out is just a, it's a experiment in madness. It's, uh, it's the (laughs) mentaculous. Yep. It's those occasional moments where you are fully present, which I think is why Richard Kind ends one of the sections by running out of the beach and going, this air, I swear, if you could bottle this air, you would make a million dollars. And you're like, that's sort of Arthur's arc is, 
that's what I think is so interesting about the Mentaculus is to me, the film is all about information and the encoding and decoding of information. And that can be thought of as like meme theory or whatever, but it's like religion is a set of rules that are really just algorithmic information that you decode into your meat computer brain Mm-hmm. that then program partially program your behavior. So is a set of philosophies. So is music. So is like so, so many things. So is just the patterns your life randomly takes if you ascribe a coded meaning to them, like, oh, that happened because of this. Um, so the fact that there's a guy in this who, A, in the most heartbreaking scene to me, says, my life is shit. How come God doesn't give me anything? What did I do to deserve this? when you, my brother, your life is perfect. And mm-hmm. that's just a powerful everything is relative moment because he goes, what do you mean? I'm living in a fucking motel. Uh, you know, all this shit is going wrong. And he goes, like, not in these words, but cut the shit, dude. Compared to me, your life is pleasant. And yeah. you could either appreciate that fact or not, but it's better than my life, <laughs> you know? There's, and yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that the Mentaculus is such a beautiful metaphor for this kind of event because it's something that I've been trying to find a good like phrase for for a long time, which is um, there's the, everyone is familiar with this kind of trope, whether it be uh, like you know, a beautiful mind or the TV show numbers or Sherlock or, you know, even the meme with the math lady where it just has all the math or Zach Galifianakis yeah. in the hangover. Uh, at a certain point when we look and we look at the Mentaculus, uh, like as a, uh, insert, uh, there's no meaningful mathematical notations in it, but the mathematics clearly like inform it. There's things like the golden ratios happening on one right. page and then it's like a labyrinth, but it's kind of like a Mandelbrot fractal. Uh, and so there's the sense that its design is like embodies mathematics without actually representing mathematics. Without and he's trying to do what his big brother does. He's yeah. trying to decode the universe. And he says literally a map of probability, which implies he's trying to write a book that will let him know what's going to happen in the future from here right. on out. And he's doing the same thing Larry's doing. <laughs> so we're doing this thing where we have this trope that it's like there's visual patterns that give us the idea of something that's familiar with math, but you don't need to understand the math because math is hard, you know? It's the thing. Right. You know, uh, so in quantum physics especially, though that's very hard. Uh, and it, when it comes down to it, though, it's like a perfect metaphor for like the – like it's the moment or the precipice that all of the, the the dichotomy kind of hits. It's where we go like, well, you know, just kind of be a good boy or it helps to be nice to people kind of stuff. Right. Where it's just like we don't even – it's kind of like us looking at – us as a layperson looking at something like the Mentaculus or looking at a real mathematical proof. It looks like nonsense, but we get the gist you know, it's we from the yeah. design we get that it like represents something meaningful, even if the we we don't really have a grasp of the mathematical notation. It's the Plato's cave of understanding. And but I also think it's an important note that like the Mentaculus, whatever it's based on, whatever signals Richard Kind thinks he's getting that he d- encodes into this written form of information that he tries to turn into a tradition to live his life by. However he navigates the world, 
The mentaculus is no less meaningful than the Bible. Do yes, you know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. It's just yeah. a, uh, it's a code. It's something to, it's like a code is something that's codified. It's just written down. It's just you know? that most people would agree that the mentaculus is not a good handbook for navigating life. And the Bible has worked for many thousands of people. But mm. to him, if he's navigating his life by the set of what rules that he sees in that book, it is a legitimate belief system for him. Which is, a, yeah, yeah, I just love the existential angle of everything can mean everything or nothing at any time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's the uncertainty principle. It's, and I love, yeah, if you can't, those who like can't a, do teach, and he literally teaches the uncertainty principle. He says to his class in his dream, there, there's the math. This proves conclusively that we can never really know what's going on. And he's right but he can't accept that. He can teach it to yeah. the point of mathematical certainty, right. but he can't live his life that way. But it will be on the midterm. <laughs> like, that's the important that's part. Is the punchline is, yeah. yeah, even though, oh, and even though no one can understand anything by its very nature, you will be responsible for all of it on the midterm, right. which is the whole central, again, the central thesis of the movie, and I think one of the truest observations about life is that sorry, but that is the way it is. No one can know what the long-term ramifications of any individual choice will be, but you will be responsible for the consequences of those ramifications. That's mm -hmm. just the system that is, that is, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah, there's, it's I'm surprised how fast we, yeah, I'm surprised <laughs> how we impact that because it kind of encapsulates all of it because it's the becoming the adult aspect of like the existentialist uh, angst of becoming an adult, the, you know, qualitative assessment of things like soundbite wisdoms being true or untrue. Uh, you know, it's, it's all kind of folded up together neatly and nicely uh, it's just tumultuous, just like, you know, it's, it's just a tornado. Yeah. It's a cyclone of chaos. Uh, and it just really like, I, I don't know. It, it, it really, it's funny to me that we both come from it going, saying this is a hopeful film. When the yeah. fact is a lot of critics, uh, talked about this film. it's the saddest one ever. We're also yeah. like, no one is likable that it's like a slog to get through. Um, I think Cy Abelman's super likable, but that's just me. I think it's hilarious. Uh, yeah. I think it's got two of the best jokes. Uh, that, like, So Coen brothers are funny, like have a great sense of humor. But the, I wouldn't argue, I think I've said this before, they're not really funny. They're like theater Not in the set-up punchline way. They're not yeah. comedians. Maybe I'm just uh, an elitist about this because I hang around comedians, and so I have a higher... Like, oh, people in the room are funnier than normal. So maybe that's just me. But it's got some of the best jokes. Uh, to me, it's got two of them. One is just that in the, the second half of the conversation with the second rabbi, after he talks about the goy's teeth and the mold and all the stuff, help me, save me, story of a dentist searching for meaning in the universe by focusing on small details of a random guy's teeth that have, you know, like uh, characters written in them. And yeah. uh, he finishes it, according to the second rabbi, he finishes it, the story. And he's like, and he just cuts to Larry and he's like, so does it have any meeting? So what did you say? Isn't, 
that why you told me the story? And the rabbi's like, ah, okay, fine. I'll finish the story, I guess. It's not really relevant. Like the one thing that we're all waiting for, like, yeah. and then what's going to be said? And give us the answer because I can't help be- want to know the answer. All what of, it, what's the yeah. wisdom? And he's like, w- I don't know. <laughs> he just doesn't care. And well, it's just a funny, like, it's like a... Well, it's also extra funny because he goes, so what happened to the goy? And he goes, the goy? Who cares? cares? (laughs) The other one. But it's that we all want a conclusive punchline that sums up the story, and by the story I mean our lives and reality, that makes it all clear in retrospect. That's one of the reasons we're addicted to telling stories. Um, So I love that Nochner is acting out that ritual of here's a story, build up, build up, you don't get the satisfaction. That's also what the opening short was. That's also what the film as a whole is because you don't know what's going to happen with the cancer or the tornado in concrete terms. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is that's also what life is. When the day you die, there will not be a magical wrap up moment that explains why that all happened to you and what it was all about. Right. Probably the story will just end that day. That's right. what's going on. <laughs> Another really funny, Two funny bits, uh, just drug bits, which means, mm-hmm. like, like, I don't know. It's always nice to know, like, when someone's smoked weed, they know, they know, you know? Like, they yeah. can make jokes about smoking weed if they've smoked a bunch of weed. So I think the Coen brothers have smoked a bunch of weed is my sure. is what I'm positing. <laughs> because I love the one when he's talking to Vivian, uh, the naked neighbor, and they're uh, in his house, and, and it's after they smoked weed. And he goes, is that a siren? And she goes, no. Sometimes people get paranoid. Oh, my God, that is a siren. It's just like <laughs> yeah. a funny, like, why would you include that in your film? Oh, I don't know. It just was kind of funny. funny on the day. It, it's well, a very different of- from, like, Walter <laughs> or the in, like, the dude just yeah. having great lines. It's just a, one of those random kind of things. It but was the one that... You- the, I'll ask the you that. The bar mitzvah or the bar mitzvah, sorry? No, no, no. I was because you said, why put it in there? Because it's just funny. The film to me is so tight. Everything is so meaningful and able to be decoded to me so satisfyingly clearly, which is ironic considering what the film is about. Um, I, the one thing I don't understand is what it means, if anything, that he sees a sexy neighbor later or like neighbor lady naked and goes over there but then doesn't really do anything and then comes back to the story that was the one thread that i don't understand how it ties into the you don't think it's aspect. enough that like he witnesses it by getting a new perspective he literally gets on his roof to adjust an antenna which is a clear metaphor for trying to get you know like a better reception to God. Well, that's my favorite. That's why this that's the moment i knew this would be my favorite movie is seeing the cover and realizing that it's beautiful that image is it's a striking image. a man literally doing some shit that he don't know doesn't know what the result will be to try and magically get clear signals from the heavens for f truth and at the same time by getting on his roof he sees from a new higher vantage point and in his own way becomes god and is looking over all the little dramas playing out in the neighborhood but doesn't interfere or do anything or affect the larger meaning and in turn is beseeching hi- above him for meaning. It's like, for all we know, the God of our world is also a Larry Gopnik praying to some greater God to understand why the fuck their life existence is the way it is, you know? Yeah, I guess uh, I, 
in simplest terms to me, not that it's like as airtight as everything else, or I don't know how airtight it is for you to uh, get that arc to like fall into the fold for that. Mm -hmm. But like, it's much kin of the same way of like, yeah, it's true. If you take something like the Odyssey uh, and, or there's like some other parable based, you know, story. And if you take out the Lotus Eaters or you take out the Cyclops, the thing still stands, uh, but it is a very welcome kind of digression yes, in the story. It is structurally. It isn't necessary. You can cut out Vivian entirely, but I think that it adds a lot of flourishing in terms of like him experimenting with like, as he says, another moment that I really liked or I thought was funny was uh, when he sees his divorce, divorce lawyer and explains the marriage situation and the property line. And they talk about rates, but of course he's interrupted by Danny getting a call from his father saying if troop is still fuzzy. Uh, mm. But he says the scene starts with, he goes, well, you know, uh, the way I look at it, this is Larry speaking. It's an opportunity for me to really sit down and figure things out and look at the world afresh instead of just, you know, settling for the routine, the tired old way of looking at things, which by the way, is a quote kind of directly grabbed from the first rabbi and uh, the divorce attorney goes, Really? And his response is, I don't know, maybe not. And to me, that's mm -hmm. kind of what's going on when we're looking at Vivian and the Vivian arc is that he is looking for new things because he realizes his life is spiraling out of control uh, and he doesn't seem to have the ability to like, re like reel it in. And in that same way, he's just like, well, maybe this is the time for me to like break out of the mold and maybe I'd do something else. Maybe just like people have midlife crisis, they have these thoughts. Uh, and to me, that's what Vivian kind of represents is just this flirtation with drugs, with the idea of, uh, you know, like, well, if she's fucking around, maybe I should fuck around. That's why he dreams mm -hmm. about having sex with her. It doesn't turn in anything from a plot standpoint, but it's definitely something that he would think about as a character. And in that same way, bringing up the Odyssey, it's kind of like one of those parts that like, totally it makes a lot of sense that also our hero would go off and uh, like have yeah. these questions and stuff like that. Speaking of which, the term for the theological uh, conundrum of how can bad things happen if God is all powerful and all good is called theodicy. <laughs> oh, well, like that you. whole conundrum has a one word name, which is theodicy. <laughs> it's got to mean something, right? It's, yeah. It's, God brought us God, together for some reason. Yeah. yeah. And it sounds like it. It must the be. The Odyssey. The Odyssey. It can't it's, be. It's characters. Yeah. It's, 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 it's Jewish characters and teeth. That's what it is. Yeah. What does it mean? Uh, yeah. I just want to, I want to also rapid fire some like, to me, the superlative virtuoso craftsmanship of the Coens is on display here in the sense that to the tiniest detail level, Things that in every other movie would just be filler dialogue or just dialogue that gets us moving. Everything is about the thesis. Like, the fact that it's a South Korean student and the father constantly talks about culture clash mm -hmm. is funny, but it's not just funny. It's supposed to make you think about the fact that so much of communication is based on language and sets of different cultural traditions meeting and having to encode or decode or translate themselves in order to interact. In the same way, 
we find out that the daughter is saving up for a nose job and the idea of anti-Semitism is also introduced. So I kind of have to believe that that's a nod to the idea of like, and see, she thinks, she feels that if she had a less Jewish nose, predictable better outcomes in life will happen for her. And mm -hmm. that's because of a sequence of information called American Standards of Beauty that is broadcast across this land like everything it's just amazing to see the world and be like everything is just layered systems of information and all that information is inherently not true because nothing is inherently true mm -hmm. <laughs> and i like mm -hmm. i also love that the doctor offers him a cigarette which is a nod to i think to the greatest authority figures alive can be made fools by time, right? You got to trust the doctor's view of reality when he says you're dying of cancer and cancer is when cells multiply out of control because he knows what the fuck he's talking about because he's a doctor and he did the math. Yeah, but he also offered you a cigarette, which 50 years later will be considered right. ridiculous. So, like, authority is always becoming proven yeah. to be hollow. They really mine the irony. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's something that I think that that's another uh, suggestion. I mean, this maybe goes to how do you do that. Uh, yeah, but we should get there soon. Yeah. I have some more jokes, but that's about this it. This is still about symbolism, but it's also kind of about how the Coen brothers have been... The Coen brothers are still like learning, in my opinion, still at this stage, which is always a good sign of any artist. Like They're finding ways to hone their craft, and by that I want to take a put a lot of attention on the editing uh specifically rhythm and rhyme which is something that is in their you know toolkit and has for a long time we talk about it all the time one that yeah. is you know easy easy to grab is that uh when uh danny's on the bus on the has, bus he yep. has his friend his his friend did you write it down he's a fucker the quotes uh, did you write it down no because i then thought let me quote it let yeah, me go quote ahead. it go ahead my funding got cut off. What do you mean? Where do you get your money? What happened? Rabbi took his radio. That fucker. Where do, you, where do you get your money? Wait, what happened? That fucker. Who? Mike Fagel. Mike Fagel's gonna kick his ass. Last week he pounded the crap out of Seth Settlemeyer. Oh, that fucker. Mm. Who? Fagel or Settlemeyer? They're both fuckers. <laughs> right. And that's... So that's something that, like, the dialogue... Re repetition of dialogue... Uh, it's still got the nuance of a Conan Brothers movie. It still feels like a Conan Brothers movie. They've done this a lot of times, and it has a good yeah. comedic effect, you know, because it kind of makes you feel like... I mean, it's it's additionally funny because it's very clearly, like, here's a teenage kid who's learned some swear words. He learned fucker, and now he can't stop using yeah, it. Yeah. Which, you know, we all had that friend as a kid who would swear all the time because they thought it was edgy and cool. Uh, they've done this before, but in this film, what they haven't really done is made a system with, like, a cascading meaning or symbolism behind it. For example, we see how uh, characters regurgitate lines from previous dialogues in other films. For example, look at The Big Lebowski. This Aggression will not stand, man, as taken from like a Ronald Reagan yeah. speech. But in this film, look at the dialogue in the divorce uh, lawyer's office. Uh, uh, unless, of course, there's some. This is the divorce lawyer. Unless, of course, there's some question of the wife having violated the marriage contract. Larry, oh no, nothing like that. Although she is planning to marry Cy Abelman, but they Cy Abelman? Yes, but they Esther's barely cold. 
she passed three years ago. And then a few other lines, there hasn't been any hanky-panky. The reason I pulled that quote out is because Larry's opening position lacks ego and confidence, that there's like been no violation, when clearly there has. Well, and also, he literally said to his wife when that's she what said, I was gonna bring I'm up. marrying Cy. Oh, then go ahead, please. Then Sorry. the lawyer quoting Larry's own words when he found right. out about Cy is Esther's barely cold. And now he's arguing his wife's, his wife's point, point by point proxy. Of view. Yeah. By saying, yeah, she passed three years ago. Come on. So even though he doesn't even believe it and it's not his like ad hoc thought that when he was like approached with the situation himself, he's now been either by some circumstance, lack of ego, lack of confidence, being berated by his wife, whatever it is. Uh, he is now becoming like less of like himself. He's being infused with other people. So that that isn't just this aggression will not stand, man. That is the repetition and the rhythm and the rhyming of dialogue across the film has an actual narrative purpose. Yeah. You know, there hasn't yep. been any hanky panky. It's not just regurgitation for comedic effect. It's wrapped into the confidence of the character and his it, motivations. The spacing between the resonant lines has meaning. Like there's a reason yeah. those lines resonate. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And it's I just, love that. Yeah, and that's the coolest way to show a car accident I think I've ever seen. Is oh right, yes. you show him get in a minor accident at the exact same moment. You never see Cy Abelman die. You just can assume that he did because he was about to turn left on a blind corner, and then we saw a different character get into a car accident. And I love how just instinctively you know Cy Abelman also got into a car accident. Yeah, you don't have to see it. Uh, if you are wanting, and here's. Uh, a note to editors in my opinion I don't know mm -hmm. if that matters but like while we're getting sliding into how to do that, do that like to a bunch of cool guys with their skateboards instead of actually making a hard like now nah, this is this section uh, the dissection of that car crash sequence I've done it I did it a few times last night and I did it like twice again today because you know me I love my stopwatch mm -hmm. uh, the Here's my takeaway of like why it's one of the best edited sequences in this movie. The music does a lot of heavy lifting, which I'll go into a little bit later. Uh, it's kind of the score which has like a John Cage or like a futurist vibe. Did you ever it's listen to It's melancholy. It's confused. Yeah, it's, yeah and yeah, that's Carter Burwell diffuse. going for something like futurists that... It's also something that... It's piano players that were coming up during literally... Uh, uh, quantum physics was coming up you know it's it was during a time when mm. this idea of quantum because like uh in music theory uh the piano is a quantized uh instrument meaning that you press a key and it has a very discrete sound right. as opposed to a sliding like something like an eba oboe which would have like you can kind of make something in between a c and a c sharp you know or something mm -hmm. like that but anyway it's got this futurist vibe to it because the pieces of music that came out of that, like um, Debussy and stuff like that, uh, they had this atonal piano notes that kind of worked because they would r repeat them enough that you kind of be like, like you've seen that, vi there's like videos that people have made of like the cat falls on the piano and like hits a bunch of notes and then they make it into an orchestra piece just because it's sure. jokes and cats and the internet. But it's that kind of thing where it's just like if you repeat a small enough phrase and then put a chord structure behind it that keeps it going, uh, that makes, it makes them the feeling of like 
I don't know, it's off-putting, but it works. And that's what I mean when I say I think the music's doing a lot of heavy lifting. On top of that, just looking at the editing proper, the emphasis on different paces, like the click and sound, and also the visual click of the turn signal, juxtaposed abruptly with the speeds of the cars in the two different uh, car spaces being different, like one's going faster, one's stopped, one's going slow, you know, slower at a different time. They're never going at the same speed. The cars also, having different speeds. The uh, grandfather the clock ticking in Marshak's yep. office. The record needle skipping at the lady's apartment. Uh, the the camera moves literally having different speeds. Uh, yep. The sound design things... is obsessed with texture and concrete and yeah. quantized rhythmic sounds like click. click and it makes click. it it's like, feel really cacophonous. And it makes but it off But it's so, such an attention to detail to have a meaning-laden strategy behind your sound design. Like, they had to write in things like, uh, you know, they're high now. The record's needle skips rhythmically. That had to be yeah. understood on the script level so that they would know that the sound design is doing a thing and we want that Makes sound, it sound design like to a execute. Heartbeat. Yeah, or something yep, like that. Yep, there's so many moments where you hear a sound in this that is soft and rhythmic and it makes you think of discrete quanta of mm. your life ticking by and it makes you think of the intimacy of heartbeats like mm. it's so perfect <laughs> and i think that the showing of the actual uh death as off screen is a nice touch but i don't think that they get nearly enough credit for the absolute virtuoso editing the tense build-up in a, a way that i've never really seen i mean i have seen because i've seen a like there's been a lot of films that have used montage to an effect of like, oh, we're gonna like like a lot of punk films and stuff like that. Like they really fucked with like even if you go back to Stan Brackage where it's just like people drawing on film and it's going too fast and it, it's unnatural and it's and it feels off putting. Yeah. This is off putting in a different way. It's still playing within the film grammar that we're used to. Here's a shot of, uh, you know, like a car. Here's a shot of a turn signal. Here's a shot of a person looking in the rearview mirror. Here's a shot of what they're seeing. It's still using all of the things that we're usually familiar standard with film in grammar. this. Yeah, standard film grammar in at least this type of film, which mm -hmm. you know is fairly transparent. Uh, you know. Uh, in terms of like not trying to do anything stylized, but the way it's edited together, if you just go and look and find on YouTube that sequence, I it's very, very effective. And I think that that's why it's so effective that at the end when you go, oh, the actual death is off screen when we learn two scenes that Sai died in a car crash, that you go like, oh, that's a nice touch. It's because that moment is so effective. Uh, yeah, it's something absolutely. that viscerally really we connect with and it's not just music it's also in the the plane of pace but the music really gives this vibe of like oh there is no rhythm the everything else has rhythm we like even uh, in the trailer of the movie it's they just if anyone watches this serious man trailer it's just like uh, it's just Psy taking uh, Larry's head and just hitting it against the chalkboard as like a kick drum it's like it literally makes music. It's uh, it's like the Chemical Brothers star guitar by Michelle Gondry. You know, it's like a really strange kind of trailer because it's not what you'd expect. It's like a oh, we decided to edit up the film and make it like musical, uh, and that's kind of like what they're doing here with 
their music and the, the pacing is they're giving this feeling of the, it's, it's rudderless, it doesn't know where it's going, the melody isn't familiar, it feels like at any time it could get louder or quieter. I don't know what the you know, beats per minute is, I, I'm totally out of my element. And then match that with you know, the context of like cars at any time mm. anyone can get in an accident is very effective. Yeah, we talked about actions have consequences, although I do love the mere surmise, sir, joke. Um, only yeah, I know about my actions. Surmise. Well, I can infer your actions, mere surmise, sir. Mere surmise, sir? Mere surmise, sir. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, yeah and I'm basically just going to rattle off stuff that blows me out to try and convince people of what I said at the top, that it's the best Cohen movie. The intense level of micro detail supporting the premise that I think we've, or the, you know, the underpinning theories that I think we've laid out fairly well. Uh, when Psy comes over to, like, try and make peace with Larry the first time he says Larry take the wine let it breathe breathing so important these are signs Larry tokens so every line of dialogue calls out like this isn't just wine this wine represents that I can fuck your wife and steal her and ruin your life but but we agree that the moral code means we need to be civil through the process. Mm. Like, again, yeah, these ascribed meaning, like codified meanings, that is like, although in nature, Larry would probably attack Cy Abelman physically. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No but one he is doesn't at odds, Larry. Because he's bought into a set of beliefs, yeah. yeah. Um, at home, there's one time they cut to the Gopnik house to show that the TV's fuzzy, and the movie on screen, which they linger on, is a cheesy old sci-fi film about a brain in a jar, which is another classic thought experiment like Schrodinger's cat that proves that life is illusory, is the classic thought experiment that everything you perceive, it's the Matrix, but it existed as a thought experiment long before the Matrix. Everything you perceive could be signals fed into your brain. You could just be a brain in a jar, and you wouldn't know the difference between that and quote-unquote real life. Um, and then it pans out, and it's a dude being forced to his knees in manacles, which I think is a reference to Kafka's The Trial, probably. Yeah. When Larry's on the roof, yeah. uh, for no quote-unquote no clear reason, the sequence ends because he looks into the sun and is just blinded and overcome with heat, uh, which I have to believe is a reference to the stranger. Cause that's like a key moment in the stranger is the sun blinds him, which is why he shoots a dude. Um, let's see. Let's see. Keep going. Keep going. Uh, Oh, I love that Cy Abelman. First of all, his name, he's an able man. And he comes to represent, like in the nightmare he has, he says, it's so simple, Larry. I'm a serious man, Larry. I fucked your wife, Larry. <laughs> That's what's going on. I seriously fucked your wife, my man. And he's um, beating his, his head, head into the, yeah. against his own uncertainty proof. <laughs> But I love that made it clear to me that Sai is, and that's why he's an able man, is like in your journey and your struggle through the confusion to understand what you believe and what's bullshit, you always, it's so easy to believe that so-and-so, some external person, they know the secret. You know what I mean? You know no one knows the secret, but you torture yourself with the thought of like, Cy Abelman does know the answer. Like, that's Larry's deepest fear, is that Cy Abelman comes to him in his dream and goes, you know how you don't know the answers? I know all the answers, and I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> you know? That's yeah. what it means to be a serious man. Um, let's see. Let's see. I'm almost through. 
Uh, of course, yeah, in Marshak's office, he the appeal to the like metahuman he wants to be. Please tell Marshak this is not a frivolous request. This is a Syria. I am a Syria. I have tried to be a serious man. Like he can't even say it. The, mm-hmm. the dialogue discipline there is so cool to me. Um, of course, the dream. Oh, 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 that's pointless. I just made a note that they mention it's Shabbos on the morning of the bar mitzvah, so we know for sure that young Walter Sobchak is not bowling during the bar mitzvah. But mm. speaking of bar mitzvah, a talk about detail level, dude. This is the shit. So I would not obviously not know this. This is on IMDb, but I'm going to read it word for word. In Parsha Cycle which reads through the five books of the Bible over the course of the Jewish year. And if you don't know, at a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, the person of honor who's going from childhood to adulthood reads an excerpt from the Torah. Um, Danny's bar mitzvah parsha, Behar, is followed by, forgive the mispronunciation, Bekukotai, Leviticus 26.3. Well, Behar discusses the Jubilee year, blah, 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 blah. It also very pointedly is part of the verses of admonition, which warn of the punishments to be endured by those who disobey God. The admonition promises exile, the loss of family, attack by enemies, and faint-heartedness, which are the fates that Larry Gopnik suffers in order. (laughs) Um, Mm. So it's believed that literally down to the date they chose, you can decipher through clues in the movie what date it is because it's on like a cycle, what excerpt bar mitzvah kids read, what mm-hmm. date Danny's bar mitzvah is, and the thing he's reading from the Torah is also an explanation of what the movie's about. That shit is awesome, dude. Yeah, they also paid a lot of attention to the detail of uh, at in the summer, or like, yeah, in the summer of 1967, there was a tornado outbreak. Yeah, in Mi- and of in course, like Minnesota. In, in the book of Job, God speaks to Job from a whirlwind. So everything is referenced and layered and multiple things just, in just a beautiful way. It's like, uh, I mean, I know it's a lot of hard work, but sometimes it does feel a little too much like the end of Barton Fink where the bird just submerged into the ocean and it's not CG and it just happens. It also spoils us. I'm like, why aren't all movies this densely correct? Like at every level of detail. And you're like, cause that's really, really hard to do. (laughs) They're doing so much, right? Uh, This was shot in like 44 days too. It's just insanely fast. I also love that Judaism is very pointedly, you know, an Abrahamic religion. Uh, They point out that, like, they call themselves the descendants of Abraham. Sai has gone to the bosom of Abraham. And, a, and there's a painting of the most notable Abraham legend in Marshak's office, which is, of course, when he was going to kill Isaac, his own son, just because God told him to. And then at the last second, God says, never mind, you don't have to, because I could just that you would do it is enough. And I just love that the foundational myth of Judaica is also... Morally challenging, complex, gets at the idea that God's logic is fuzzy and not necessarily human, and that God might demand something horrible from you and you don't get to know why. Like, the, it's perfect that they're Jewish. Like, it's like they planned their own lives. It's like they were born <laughs> as Jewish Minnesotans so they could make this movie about existentialism and duality someday. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, what does it mean? What is, what yeah. Is, what is the world trying to tell us? I also just fucking love that 
he could have kept the money and not changed Clive's grade. Because he's right when he says, you have no proof and you can't sue me for defamation if I don't. Like, it's funny to me that Larry, even in breaking his own moral code by accepting a bribe, he wants to abide by the moral code of what it is to be a criminal. Does that make sense? He's like, yeah. I took the bribe, therefore cause and effect dictates I have to change the kid's grade. And I realized in this watch through that I was like, he didn't actually have to, but Larry is such a slave to algorithmic thinking that he's like, I guess I'm a criminal now, so now I'll abide by that sequence of codes. <laughs> I just love he can't escape that. Um, yeah, yeah, that's all. I, I'm maybe. exhausted. Let's do the howdies. Uh, I just wanted to point out something that I thought, because I mentioned Plato's Cave earlier, and I we yeah. kind of blazed past the first rabbi, who's the who's Wallowitz younger. from the Big Bang Theory, yeah, by the way. He's younger than Larry. I also love, so the old venerable one is just Marshak. Yeah. The middle-aged kind of respected one is Rabbi Nachner. The junior rabbi who comes off as like, rabbi don't give me advice. Get the Scott fuck out of here. He's just Rabbi Scott. <laughs> yeah, it's just like a guy. Larry and Scott talking in an office. So yeah, he's younger than Larry, which is off-putting because anytime you're seeking... You want time, authority, you know, right. But, you know, yeah. rabbis have to be young, so it's like he, he does the thing. He's like a therapist, you know, he talks to and says all of his problems. And we kind of cut through that and we jump in and immediately uh, Rabbi Scott identifies his problem as a problem of faith. And he kind of waxes poetic in a, another kind of like how we were talking about how the kid in the bus... Uh, the kid on the bus is using the word fucker. Like, it seems to me when I watch this scene that Rabbi Scott is just, since he's junior rabbi, he's very excited to tell him about, like, what he's learned now that he's a rabbi. Uh, because he goes on a long diatribe about how he's, uh, Larry's probably forgotten how to see a shem in the world. Uh, which is another way of saying God in the world. Well, if I can't and see And I would him, expand it further and say it also just means, like, you don't even have to be religious. Those moments of being fully present and being like... Splendor. Wow, yeah. how strange it is to be anything at all. Like, mm -hmm. how crazy that existence even exists. And he says, so you must be thinking essentially, well, if I can't see him, he isn't there. He's gone. Uh, you just need to remember how to see him. So he's arguing that he's looking at his wife and his life through tired eyes, giving examples. And this is where the Plato's cave kind of comes in because he gives the example of the parking lot. He's like, take this parking lot, for example. And by the way, the whole scene is set in this like small cupboard, like office filled with books. Uh, and so it's, you, there's only one window and it's a kind of small, like awkwardly slanted window. And he kind of has to like stand up and like move over around just to like look at this shitty parking lot. And he takes from it the first rabbi, Rabbi Scott, says how it too, the parking lot, can be full of wonder. Uh, he's so excited about infusing passion and new life into Larry that he doesn't listen to Larry who attempts to interrupt the stream of consciousness a few times times but just right. can't get words and his, in edgewise he's like it's no, no, no it's yeah i was ahead. cheated on and stuff like that like it's he he wants to stop this kid from like telling him how it is but the kid's like kind of on a roll but like i don't know it's just like one of those wonderful like wonderfully true events that happen with people where they're like trying to get out what they want to say but what they want to say is kind of irrelevant 
but not the kid's little, to yeah. no one. It's relevant to someone, but it's not necessarily right to him, which is hilarious because like we talked about the dichotomy and later at one point after he's gotten high, Larry goes like, maybe the junior rabbi was right. <laughs> you know, like once right. again, wisdom is wisdom. Well, because the junior rabbi is right. It's just that in that context, which is again, the fluidity of meaning in that context, just telling him something that's true, which is, you know, the more you're present, the more you can open yourself up to appreciating however life, wherever life takes you, it's just a big adventure and or whatever. Um, yeah, that's true. But in the context of this scene, it's completely useless advice. Mm -hmm. So I love that that re very true wisdom can be bullshit. And that I think it's intentional that he has the most books, whereas um, Marshak has artifacts. It's like he's younger and his lesson is about just do it, man. Just be present because he's closer to in age to Danny. He's closer to childhood yes. when you can just get high and listen to music and it's easy to be present. And he's trying to remind Larry that that's a thing you have to practice and hold on to. And I just love that all of his knowledge is from books still because he hasn't lived long enough to have yeah. it all be from artifacts of experiences he's had. Right. And it's, it's of course, you know, the three rabbis, you have a younger uh, yeah. about the same age and an older uh, all relatives to uh, Larry I just thought that that was very like Plato's cave of him because Definitely. he's also he's just peering into this little small little like if we think of youth like, we, we're looking through this small little window and, and we're it's trying to infer meaning on a fucking empty par parking lot. You know, a parking lot absolutely can be beautiful, but obviously it can you're also be ugly. Inferring <laughs> so much into it by these little flashes of light that you see against the back of the cave wall. Yeah, and it's just like one of those things. It's like reading books. It's all kind of like based off your perception and what you have deemed is important, and that's how you live your life. That's and all the there meaning is. you attach to those things. Like I think it's important that he the example uses is he's like sure a parking lot right the most mundane boring depressing space ever but imagine if you were a caveman transported to this parking lot cars would like you would be in awe and like fall to your knees at what a marvel like what is this amazing thing mm -hmm. so it's like yeah that's true Cy Abelman's fucking my wife, though. So it's yeah. true. Again, it's like, the duality. Well, then, yes, you, you get is yeah, almost always truly <laughs> have to do. True wisdom that is also useless right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also love that anytime a get is mentioned in the film, even, even the, rabbis the rabbis are like, what is that? It's always yeah. followed by a what. So it's, it's it must dismissing be an obscure role. It's a dismissing of its importance. It's immaterial. It's one of those things. Or you're, you're however observant you are, and if you're super observant, you look down on people who are less observant as, like, breaking the moral strictures of yeah. your code that you all agreed to. But if you're less observant, you just don't, you're like, oh, again, I hadn't heard of that. No it's deal. also just, <laughs> it's a, one of those perfect things for a Cy Abelman idea. You know, it's just like... Yeah, he wants it I, to be proper. He wants it to be proper, and civil. but also he needs to find this obscure, random thing that no one really cares about, like the vintage of wine, you know? Right. But he, well, he and wants yet, to be known about as a wino. He wants to be known as a, you know, like a Jew that would care about that kind of thing, even though people are like, yeah, okay, yeah, whatever. Although That's, I am firmly convinced that that throwaway line from uh, Judith when they're at the bar mitzvah is conclusive. 
Cy was sending the horrible letters to the tenure board in my interpretation of the film, which is another duality because it's like, nope, Larry was right about one thing. Cy really was, underneath it, a brutal, predatory, aggressive guy. Um, His surface is just the opposite. I love that. Yeah, which, you know, like, whether or not Larry glean that is true or not or how he did when he's in his dream he actually sees him become violent and it's kind of like so that's probably you know looking in looking between the lines yeah Uh, and again with the the fact is in the dream he goes i fucked your wife larry i fucked your wife but the wife says they never consummated their relationship because uh, they're religious and now Sai's dead. We don't actually know if he fucked his wife. It's right. another thing we don't know for sure one way or the other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So Tuckman Marsh, who were mentioned in Burn After Reading, are also mentioned in this. Just oh, an yeah. Easter egg. It's just a, a leather law firm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, they're, they're called like, yeah, they're good, man. They're pretty. They're good, which is the same in Burn After Reading. They were considered a good law firm. Except Clooney was, would shit. He'd be like. What really, Tuckman Marsh? But Tuckman Marsh, but Kentucky, yeah, uh, Kentucky verse, whatever. Yeah, um, the song that is repeatedly heard in the score and on records multiple times, that is like a Yiddish singer. That's not Carter Burwell's score. Is Dem Milner's Trern? I think I'm saying <laughs> the Miller's Tears is the translation. Uh, by it's a Yiddish folk song about a sad Miller's fears of growing old and alone without ever figuring out what it was all about. So again, of course, it's the story of the movie. <laughs> um, yeah. While flipping through the Mentaculus, one page has a doodle with the words Higgs boson written backwards. Jesus. I don't think that's anything, but that's, it's cute. That's that's uh that's the production designer just doing just like I don't know cute. like Higgs boson. Yeah. <laughs> and then I love uh, the two notable previous like people in contention before they settled. Uh, Arthur Gopnik, the brother with the cyst on his neck, uh, was ri- Patton Oswalt was in consideration. Personally, I'm a big fan of Patton, especially his writing. Um, but Richard I don't kind. think you can. Richard Kind is the better choice in this case. Yeah, Richard Kind is beautiful and and richard kind because of his unique like gooberish vibe all he plays is light comedy to see that scene at the pool where richard kind gets to it's like the end of magnolia when you get when you know um william h macy Macy, gets to do that i have so much love to give it's like damn good for him getting to i knew he was capable of this it's nice Mm -hmm. to see him do it yeah (laughs) yeah no it's fantastic uh scene at the pool yeah, and then Mark Marin considered for Larry Gopnik, which I kind of think would have ruined it. Like I don't, yeah. I don't. Michael Stuhlbarg, I don't. Is perfect. For the, it. the nuance and the specific. I don't know if it's editing, but I think it's both. That's what I think. Mark Marin. Little ticks like, would have been too like, casual. This is such yeah, a formulated it's movie. Such it's uh, it's so clear that he's a trained actor because he every single he hears a word and he has a tick you know and stuff like mm-hmm. that it's all very specific and uh yeah i don't know if i don't i haven't seen mark Marin do that kind of work before so i don't know if he can but yeah you know. and then my favorite easter egg that i never got you know the internet had to tell me is that in that scene where the dad comes up uh, he's in his drive. Larry's in his driveway talking to Clive's father, and the anti-Semitic neighbor comes up and says, "This guy bothering you." 
It's intentionally shot in such a way. My initial thought was, oh, the joke is, sure, he's anti-Semitic, but he's so racist that, you know, being Korean's even worse. Or, like, you know, he parses mm-hmm. it or whatever. Yeah. But actually, I read this online, and I'm like, that's true. The way it's shot, and I, it must be intentional because all their choices are, you can't tell if he's saying to Larry... Yeah. Is this guy bothering you? Or if he's saying to the father, is Larry bothering you? Right. It's another duality where you're actually like his racism, his racism, which, again, is a an illusory, empty set of ideas that he decided to subscribe to that racism. That's what I believe in. Right. Um, his racism is a Schrodinger's cat. It's, you can't uh, even tell who he's being I mean, racist to. This is, to me, I was going to bring this up for Howdy Do That, which is uh, what we're in now. Oh, we're uh, deep in Howdy Do Yeah, that. so... We're in deep do. The, yeah. Uh, the reason for that, if I may argue, like, it's... It comes from, like, you know how, um, you know, left to right, up and down when you're reading a comic, you know, there's there's hard and fast rules about... Right. This is how you read it. Unless it's manga. Sure. But there's a system that you don't break it because otherwise the audience gets confused. Uh, There's two elements that make what that shot, because everyone who sees it, that shot that you're talking about, comes from it with the same kind of impulse where it's like they they get what's going on because the the scene proceeds as you'd expect and then you're like validated by oh he's talking about the asian man yeah uh but the reason that you have that little momentary like wait what's going on there until it's verified is because it's a combination of two camera elements and the first is short framing which i'll describe in a second and the second is eyeline now eyeline's a little easier to describe which is who's looking at who are they looking left who's making eye contact who's making eye contact and since he's making eye contact with uh there there's a little bit of staggering in the shot on the left of frame is larry on the right is uh like clive's Clive's dad dad and in direct center but slightly to the left and closer to um larry is uh mr brandt so the eye line is kind of direct. It's kind of at camera mm-hmm. yeah, or it's near camera, which is off-putting just because it's in between two people. But so if someone had like a lazy eye, let's say, you, that could be passable if we had that detail in there. It's just a slight askew. But it's all consistent with how you shoot a scene. And, and you, like if I'm talking to you and I'm looking at you, that all agrees with each other. What yeah. really... So it's that first thing where it's kind of un it's kind of not typical it's not completely left to right not right to left it's kind of in the middle that's one thing but that doesn't do it itself what does it is the short framing and what short framing is is that in a typical let's say if I was to do overs as a director and to put my cameras like I'm going to shoot over the shoulder on so that one person's talking to another person at a table they're usually on the left side of frame with their eyes looking to the right side of frame. And then when you pop over to the other side and get with the coverage of the other person that they're talking to, they would be on the right side of frame with their eyes going to the left. Because what that has the effect of is that on when we put the two frames next to each other, let's say, which never happens in you know film, but like if you were to take two images and print them out, you have 
two characters, one on the left side, one on the right side, and then their eye lines would uh, hypothetically meet in the middle, mm-hmm. and they would connect. And that is a job well done, and that everyone gets that. That's the film grammars we're all aware of. And that's great, because that's something that we rely on heavily when we're doing things like overs or we're doing things like a scene between two people. It doesn't make you ask questions. Now, short framing is when you keep the eye It has nothing to do with eye lines. But what you do is if I was to short frame someone, I would have, if you were to once again have two different images, but you were to print them out, I would still be looking left to right and right to left, my two characters. But instead of the on the left side and on the right side, I'd flip that. So, that the right, so my character who's looking to the right end of frame is on the right side. And the person who's on the left end, on the left edge of the frame, is looking left. So the area where their eyes are going does not have a lot of frame space between it. Another way to imagine it is like the edge of the frame is very close to their nose as they're looking forward, yes. talking to the person. Yes. Yeah. So that. So does, it's like, is this a duel? Like they seem weirdly close to each bizarre. other. It's yeah. bizarre. People have done it to some great effect. There's times where you're like looking, like Spielberg does it a lot when he's like, there. he has this moment where he's looking, someone's looking at something like a a, a nuclear bomb or someone's looking yeah. at that moment where it's like, oh shit, he, he will short frame in his singles. Because yeah, and as silly oh as it moment. sounds like, it's often used when the director wants you to th- meditate on what the character must Is be thinking yeah. instead of what they're saying. So yeah. it's like so showing their head the and a bunch effects. of space the above the their head invites un- you to imagine their thoughts. It's not Sorry. unreliable, the eye lines, but it is off-putting because it's not normally done in concert with the fact that you're short framing and putting them on the wrong side uh, because you would expect if... In a normal frame that wasn't short-framed, Mr. Brandt would be looking at uh, the South Korean father. So you think left to right, but really what you need to think of is right to left, even though that's wrong based off how the line, the 180 rule and everything up to that point was. It's like flipping the world or flipping the the line in a a respect. So it's off-putting, but it all works. And that's what gives you the feeling of like, wait a second, is there? And that's such a devotion to, it's kind of like when you're doing something, when you've learned something, like that's why I brought up the comic books. When you've learned that, okay, these are the hard and fast rules and this is how people know to read something. When you fuck with it, it makes people angry. But then if you make it a thing that is like, oh, but that has a purpose, then it's a bold innovation. Then in it's a bold innovation. Storytelling, yeah. <laughs> and that's so. That's wait, why did that, that math? Works. Did that math lead you to a conclusive answer about who he's talking to in your mind? Oh, he's definitely talking to because of the eye line. He's definitely talking to Larry about Clint Clive's dad. I uh, uh, okay. I believe you. I just like the interpretation where it's yet another thing that's impossible to know for sure, but it might not be true. I think that might that not that's be the why intent, they're, they're hinting at it, but they can't conclusively say that because otherwise Brand yeah. might be going like, no, you, sir, what were you, are you bothered by him? Like right, he, he might be trying, that's the implication he might yeah. be trying to dig up dirt on Larry. Like be sure, like, is Larry sure. causing problems with this guy? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Plus I think that even though, I just think that given the fact that it's, uh, 1967 and that guy's age there's clear 
you know, the guy doesn't like Asians. Well, yeah, his whole thing, I think, is about the system of beliefs he subscribes to is basically American jingoism. Like, mm -hmm. he must think he's doing his best to, like, take land back from the Jews when he expands his property yeah. line. I mean, you know, and it's just another sequence of meaning you can subscribe to or see through if you choose. And it's kind of this haunting nightmare of a suburb that, like, they, like I want to see a movie about this guy because it terrifies me. Because he, oh, like, yeah, takes that kid his, he's raising is going to be fucked. <laughs> uh, he, he takes his kid out of school Mitch. to hunt with him. Uh, yeah. He, like, there's something about, like, where they shot and just the color palette and everything about, like, when he, the scariest scene to me somehow is him, Brant, Mr. Brand playing throwing. catch with his son. Yeah, it's like me too. Scariest moment it's, in the movie. You go like what? Because all he they're, does, they're like is look mannequins. at Larry and throw the ball extra hard, like he's yeah. mad. Yeah. yeah, and it's terrifying. Yeah, it's it's really, and it's something to do with the fact that everything in Minnesota in this like or in this particular you know area is so flat, and there's no. There's no fences. There's no so separation there's no between the homes. Yeah. Yeah. And it just really feels off putting because they're just boxes on a street that are, you just feel naked. Everyone feels naked right. and it's really off putting. Like someone can just walk over and just look into your window and they're still on their property and it just doesn't feel right. Uh, that is another thing where tonally. Yeah. No trees or hedges blocking mm -hmm. anyone's view. It's just boxes on grass. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like in the prologue where they're just like, I'm setting the tone to be like, when someone says like, you couldn't have talked to that person, that person's been dead for three years. You're immediately teleported into a horror story. It's right. same kind of deal where it's just like one of those things that isn't really film grammar necessary, but it's just the vulnerability of it just puts you off. Yeah, although I do wonder the whole film being about semiotics and the tradition of certain styles of information encoding is why the short is in 4-3 aspect ratio instead of, you know, filmic width. Yeah. Is I was like, I never had a theory for that, but my theory finally that I arrived at is I think it might be hearkening to the idea of history. You know what I mean? Like, sure. it's TV-shaped, and then it graduates to being film-shaped because this is a movie about right. how things change as they move forward in time. Right. It's really because the TV shape comes from 16-millimeter yeah. film. So 16-millimeter versus uh, widescreen. Exactly. Which I Which think is they, the history of I think film, they might have yeah. been digital at this point. Or perhaps, maybe, I'm not sure. I can't recall which is the first digital deacons but it may be actually uh, later than this it might have actually been like skyfall digital or deacons digi digi yeah but That's i think the we god i subscribe to <laughs> i uh <laughs> robo deacons i uh yeah like that's Kind of all I have. We kind of talked about Me the too. how do you do that. It's the only other one that I wanted to put emphasis on, which is still kind of symbolic, is that if you rewatch it, I don't want to say too much about it, but like all the emphasis they put on ears uh, mm -hmm. and not just visually where we're just showing an insert of someone putting on like headphones or something like that, but... Or, or the all, opening shot yeah. through the tunnel, through the ear. Also, we hear sound design of garbled radios, music. Right. Uh, the sun has modern rock. Traditional figures are tied closely to classic music, opera, or, or like readings of the Torah. Because it's a movie about listening, yeah, receiving exactly. information. It all yeah. comes back down to the reception of yep. uh, the expression of nature. And it's just interesting to hear 
how they made that a playground. Uh, and they also tied it visually with a lot of emphasis on ears, all kinds of ears, old men's ears with a lot of mm-hmm. fucking hair, young boys ears. It's all over the place. They do a lot of dissection in that. They also do because they have the dentist thing. They focus on teeth for a whole, yeah. you know, 10 minutes. Listening and talking. Yep. Makes sense. Input in, input out. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, yeah. Info, input, info, output. Yep. I mean, so, how are you going to know how to live your life if F Troop is fuzzy? You need that info. You need that F Troop. And you need it to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of it for me as I well. Mean. Yeah. Um, I'll take this opportunity to ask people to please hit up iTunes if you wouldn't mind and give us five stars or even better, a positive written review. Uh, uh, over at you know how the thread works it's just small beans not per- not Cohen Brothers Brothers in particular but that would really help us out so that's our call to action this time uh, you can find merch our merch store at patreon.com slash small beans and uh, of course on our YouTube channel youtube.com slash small beans we're making more episodes of off hours so if yeah. you somehow made it this far and not heard of that appra- be appraised yeah, and uh, from when this is released, because I believe it'll be released on Monday, uh, it'll probably come in in two weeks after that, uh, and that will be episode three. So if you haven't seen two episodes so far, uh, you they go are there for there, you to there. watch. Yeah, and the third one's coming. Uh, yep. And yeah, that's once a month. But this has been the Cohen Brothers, brothers. Yes, it has. Thanks for listening.